It's with a slightly heavy heart that I introduce our latest episode, given that the film we're discussing is almost certainly the great Robert Redford's last. That film is The Old Man and the Gun, and the writer-director behind it is David Lowry. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast about movie music with some of the biggest names in the business. David first appeared on this show back in August 2017 where we covered A Ghost Story, Pete's Dragon and Ain't Them Body Saints, amongst many other things. So here the focus is very much on his latest project. Based on a true story, it stars Robert as gentleman bank robber Forrest Tucker, Sissy Spacek, the woman he falls for and Casey Affleck, the rookie cop, pursuing him. To a person, the acting is electrifying. Tom Waits also has a role which gives me an excuse to play one of my favourite tracks of his, What's He Building? You'll also hear music by Jackson C. Frank, The Kinks, Scott Walker and Bonnie Prince Billy. The score, meanwhile, is provided by Daniel Hart, who is David's regular collaborator. At Daniel's suggestion, the pair settled on jazz for the sonic backdrop, as demonstrated by the opening cue, simply titled Theme. Yeah, I was listening back actually to our last chat and you said right at the start, I've just finished the next one. Oh yeah, this is it. This (laughs) is it. So welcome back to Soundtracking, David. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back. I have to admit that since we last spoke, I think I've pretty much listened to the soundtrack for Ghost Story at least once a week. It stuck with me a lot. You and me both. A lot. Congratulations on this new film, Thank You. It's beautiful. It's a lot of fun. It really is. And I kind of, you know, from, from, it was really nice actually the last time we spoke because it popped up in the conversation really naturally a couple of times. And so it was in the back of my mind in terms of this excitement Mm -hmm. of finally getting to see it. But what happened, what has happened since you finished filming it till now, till this finished film and, and with the music particularly, was everything kind of locked in by that point or was it with Daniel, was it a kind of continuous conversation as you went through the edit? No, I think the last time we spoke, it was a few months after we had finished shooting. Yeah. And so the edit was well underway and we had okay. a pretty good cut of the film, but we we still had a few, a few things left to shoot that yeah. hadn't been shot yet and the score had not been begun yet. 
with this film, I really wanted to wait until we had a pretty solid edit to hand it over to Daniel. Yeah. I wanted to find the rhythm of the movie okay. intrinsically within the film itself before Daniel illuminated it with his with his music. And so the scoring process probably didn't really begin until right around this time last year. Okay. I think I think right around this time he started to come up with sketches and ideas for, you know, the themes and just the tenor of the music itself. The idea that it would be jazz influenced had just recently been hit upon by by him and he brought that idea to me and Great. I really loved it and it was all still very nebulous at this point last year. What was the appeal for the jazz theme? It is a genre of music that I'm not that familiar with, to <laughs> yeah. be honest. Um, there's so much out there, and I, I know some of like the more famous pieces, and I know the hits, as they say. <laughs> yeah. But it's something that I'm not a student of. On the other hand, Daniel is. It's been a huge influence on Daniel's music. Although if you listen to his music, you wouldn't necessarily expect that. Mm. So I think that for him, it was a chance to delve into a side of music that he really loves, but hasn't gotten a chance to work in that much. Maybe. And it just felt right for this movie. You know, I had suggested to him that the score be heavily percussive. Mm. And so I think he went into it with that in mind. And through explorations with that, initial sketches, he realized it couldn't just be percussion, it needed something else, but he just kept that idea in mind and somehow that turned into the brush hits on the drum kit and yeah. uh, and then he added some horns on top of that and all of a sudden, piano, all, yeah, you just really, beautiful piano it, piece. it really just lent itself to the way the movie looked. Performances influence the music at all because Robert Redford, it's just poetry watching him on, on screen and in this film as well, it's just gorgeous. But then also in those scenes where he is working with other actors, whether it be Sissy Spacek or uh, Danny Glover, Tom Waits, those particular moments are really special. And I wondered whether those performances inspired 
much about the music and the tone. And I know that they do. Daniel loves to come to set and yeah. just watch us shoot scenes. That's where he really begins to come up with the initial ideas that he wants to explore. He really just pulls from what he sees us shooting on set. And so those performances, you know, he's watching them happen live yeah. in front of them. And so I know that they have an influence. Also, just the tenor of someone's voice, like really kind of like you think like, okay, we're going to be watching this person for 90 minutes and listening to them speak and the music will often be, you know, working around their voice and it needs to sort of support that and support the musicality of their voice. And Redford has a very specific way of speaking that is entirely his own yeah. and the music needs to complement and support that. Film. So um, he says. We'll so see. He, yes. So he said. I see. I think if anyone can persuade him to do another one, it's you. He said that if I brought him another movie, he would consider it. So do I, it. I need to. I need to get. I need to get. Her, hurry up and write something. Has he ever worked with Sissy before? He had never worked with her before, which shocked me. Me too. If I can take credit for anything, it's bring them together for the first time because yeah. they are just dynamite together. Yeah, I want a kind of spin-off movie. Yeah, just the two of them. Yeah, totally. Completely. Completely. The form the after years. Yeah. Thing. But it's just it's wonderful to watch. You know, obviously there's a script there which which you wrote, which is adapted from this article that you yes. read in the, the New, New Yorker. Yorker. Yes. Um, but playing with that, and I, I wanted to ask whether their relationship and their chemistry informed this script when those two were, were working together. It was my idea of what their chemistry would be. I just okay. felt that they were two people who were cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And as I was writing these scenes and imagining the two of them playing the, the parts, I just kept writing. I, you know, the wow. scenes just kept going. That opening scene before the title hits is about 10 minutes long, and I just could have kept it going. I just was so <laughs> happy just spending time with the two of them in that space. But I was writing for Bob. He was already on board. From, he was on board from day one. But Sissy was someone who I hadn't met. And so my I was writing that part for her without knowing for sure if she would do it. Wow. And just really crossing my fingers. Yeah. But at the same time, like I knew like if I could just get the two of them in a room together, it would be magical. So everything that they do in the film is completely scripted. It's 100% there on the page. They, of course, elevate it far beyond what I was able to write. But I was completely captivated on the idea that if I could just get the two of them in a room together, mm. something magical would happen. I can't imagine she took much persuasion. It was one, I feel like, one Skype call where we talked about <laughs> it. And at the, after that, you know, I don't know if she said yes on that call. But from that point <laughs> forward, it was definitely like, okay, Sissy's in this movie. It's going to work out. Excuse me. Need some help? No, I'm good. Let me take a look. You know anything about cars? Uh, no, not really. So, uh, what did you say you do? Well, that's a secret. And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. 
Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank. And instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window. And you just walk in, real calm. So you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, OK? <sighs> You're not serious. And then this brilliant trio of friendships yes. that you see of the characters with Forrest and Teddy and Waller. Yes. Played by Donald Glover and Tom Danny Wayne. Glover. Sorry, Danny Glover. Sorry, yeah, God, I got mixed up with my Donald Glover. Oh, no, I know, I'm watching, I'm watching Atlanta I'm right now. I'm watching him every yeah. day at the minute, so <laughs> yeah. he's kind of just in my psyche, yes. yeah. Uh, and Tom Waits, which we'll talk about particularly in a second, but that is so much fun to watch, that relationship between the three of them. It's really, I was just emailing with a friend last night who went to see it and he assumed that all of that stuff was improvised. And it's not, it's largely all scripted, but the way those guys act around each other, again, yeah. it just feels like they've known each other for years yeah. and are just riffing with each other. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to have a sequence of these guys who feel like they have a history. There's not mm -hmm. a lot of scenes with them. They yeah. don't show up you know, that often in the movie, but when they do, you feel like that sense of history there. Oh, totally. And that sense of affection for one another. Mm. And that was really important to me. I, you know. In general, I wanted every character in this movie to just like the other characters. Like, mm. there's affection running through and through this entire film. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's kind of a love story between so many different Yeah, people. exactly. Another thing that, I really, that really stuck with me, actually, being a parent, I think, is the way that Casey's character interacts and talks with his kids. Yeah. I love that. Was that something that you were particularly paid attention to? That was one of the reasons I wanted to cast him in the part. I love the idea that his kids are part of his life and that they help him, yeah. you know, solve. They both help him solve the case, but also deal with his own midlife crisis. Yeah. And I just see the way he interacts with his own kids and knew that he would be great with that. So. Yeah. A lot of the interactions with those kids, you know, I was talking to them previously about how so much of what feels like improv is scripted, mm. but in that case, a lot of it is him hanging out with those kids, coming up with ideas between takes, and they were just riffing with one another. Mm. So a lot of that is very improvised, and he's great at that. He's so yeah. wonderful with those kids. Thank you for casting Tom Waits. It's oh, great to see him on screen. I, uh, I thank Tom Waits for agreeing <laughs> to be in this movie. It was a treat for me, too. Did you write the part for him? How did you approach him and convince him to take part? It was interesting. In the initial script, those two parts were very thinly written. Yeah. They're, they're not in the movie that much anyway, mm. but even in the, the script, they were barely sketched in yeah. because I thought, let me just find two actors who will bring a lot of weight to their limited screen time, and I'll write more dialogue once I know who's going to be in the parts. And so I was like, it would be great to get Danny Glover, and it would be great to get Tom Waits. Let's send them the script. And they both said yes, although with Tom, uh, it was a series of phone calls that began with him saying no. And, and he just wanted to, he, 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 I think, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went down now, but he called, he called me to say that he was a fan of the script and he was a fan of my previous uh, film, Ain't the Body of Saints, and that he didn't want to make this movie, but he just wanted to talk about it. Okay. And... Um, so we talked about it, and I was like, great, that's enough for me. You know, I'm going to have a phone call with Tom Waits, and he's telling me that he's liked things that I've done before. I can wow. die happy. And, I mean, he just speaks in these little phrases that mm -hmm. sound like, you know, Bukowski poems. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Lyrics to his and songs. And lyrics to his yeah. songs, even. What's he building in there? What the hell is he building in there? 
has subscriptions to those magazines. He never waves when he goes by. He's hiding something from the rest of us. He's all to himself. I think I know why. He took down the tire swing from the pepper tree. He has no children of his own, you see. He has no dog. He has no friends. And his lawn is dying. What about all those packages he sends? What's he building in there? We have a right to know. And at one point he said, you know, he was deciding, he was trying to decide what he wanted to do next in his career, like whether he was going to go on tour or not, whether he should take this role. And he said, you know, I'm 67 years old, I got to figure out what my next score is going to be. And I was like, even if you don't take this part, I'm going to use that in the script. It's a really great line. <laughs> and it, so it's in there. It's in the trailer even. And so I ended up writing a lot of it for him um, once he, he ultimately did say yes, obviously. And I, I was writing it for him. He would say things to me like that that I would then incorporate into the script. And then at one point he told me this story about, you know, an incident that happened to him in, when he was a teenager. Yeah. Is that and his story? It's a story. And I just was like, that's an amazing story. Um Let's put that in the script, too. Oh, and the reaction to the audience when I was watching that film, the place erupted with laughter. It's just great. I mean, that is one of those moments where the story has no bearing on the plot of the film. <laughs> it has nothing nothing of import in terms of the narrative, and yet the movie would not be nearly as good if we didn't have that mm. moment. If we just didn't stop the movie for two minutes to listen to Tom Waits tell a story <laughs> about why he hates Christmas. Um, this is the first film where you've kind of really embraced contemporary music in terms of what you know, it is, yeah. needle drops. Really. Yes. How was that process for you in navigating your way through what you wanted to use and what felt right? This was the first movie that I'd made where it felt appropriate to have that sort of needle yeah. drop. Pete's Dragon had a few, and Ain't the Body Saints had a few, and of course, a Ghost Story had. A, I got I got overwhelmed. Yeah. But by and large, most of the needle drops in my past films have been created specifically for the yeah. films, and. In this case, I wanted to just have that surge of joy you get when you hear a song that you love. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of the great joys when you go to a movie and you just hear a song you love on the soundtrack. And I wanted to take advantage of that with this with this film. So in the very first draft of the screenplay, I had that Jackson C. Frank song, Blues Run the Game. That was always there. Catch a boat to England, baby, maybe to Spain. Wherever I have gone, wherever I've been and gone, wherever I have gone, the blues are all the same. Send out for whiskey, baby, send out for gin, me and room service, honey. Me and room service, babe. Me and room service, well, we're living a life of sin. Every version of the movie that I ever wrote, there was always a scene where that song came in because I just felt that that song yeah. communicated everything I, I felt was important about Forrest Tucker. When I'm not drinking, baby, you are on my mind. When I'm not sleeping, honey. When I ain't sleeping, mama, when I'm not sleeping, you know you'll find me crying. 
songs. I didn't really have a list or a playlist or, you know, a, a, a mixtape of, of dream songs that I would give out to the cash and crew. Sometimes I have those for projects and other times I don't, but I just knew that we'd have room elsewhere for more songs. And in the script, there's this moment where Casey comes home and turns on the radio and dances with his wife. And so I knew there'd be something there. And Tika, who plays Maureen, his wife, I remember she was like, telling me that it would be really nice to know in advance what that was so that yeah. they could just plan what they were going to dance to and, and how they were going to, you know, sashay around the kitchen. And I was like, yeah, I'll think of something. I'll think of something. <laughs> I kept putting it off until finally, like, the day of the shoot is there and we, we have to shoot it. And I was just like, can't you guys just pretend? And they're like, no, we need to know kind of what the rhythm is. So I was like, okay, let's uh, – I've always wanted to use Lola in a movie. Let's just, let's just use Lola. And we, we won't be able to afford it. We can't use it, but we'll, we'll rehearse with that. And we'll shoot one take with it. I met her in a club down in Old Soho Where you drink champagne and it tastes like Coca-Cola C-O-L-A Cola She walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in a top-brown voice she said hello So we did that, and it was great, because Lola's an amazing song. And it really just livened up that scene, and we had a, a really electric feel that was really nice. And, and so then we get to the edit, and my editor, of course, heard that she saw that in the dailies, and that's what we had, and so she dropped it into the edit. And I'm watching the first assembly, and the scene ends, and Lola stops. And I'm like, wait, I'm not done listening to it. Let's just, that song needs to keep going. I want to keep hearing it. And the next scene is this big scene at the diner. And I was like, let's just have the song playing at the diner, too, and have it continue through this entire sequence, shifting from diegetic to non-diegetic, and, mm -hmm. and let it really become the backbone of this climactic diner scene. And it doesn't really make sense. Like, lyrically, it doesn't really fit, but it kind of does, does at the same time. Yeah. It kind of does. Like, it's really bizarre how well it worked. So we have it in there. And we're telling ourselves the entire time that, like, this is going to have to go. Like, we can't, <laughs> we can't afford it. It's way too big of a song. And, and then indeed, the price for licensing was higher than we could afford. But at a certain point, you know, towards the end of the process, mm. we tried out so many other songs. They just didn't work. Yeah. didn't have that magic. And, uh, Can you not use the Robert Redford card and just kind of, you know... We used you... it. We used it. <laughs> oh, believe me, we used that. It got the price down, but not that far down. Get um, them on the phone. It's like, yeah. please, Bob, you've got to just, just give them a quick call and ask them. <laughs> so finally we were just like, our financier, bless his heart, was like, I would 
you know, I'd, I'd be disappointed with myself if we didn't actually release the movie with Lola. So we just amazing. we just wrote the check, bit the bullet, and uh, it's an amazing part of the movie. And then of course there's like Scott Walker as well, and I just love Scott Walker, like all through his whole career, from like the earliest stuff to like the weird soundtracks he does now. So I kept trying out different Scott Walker songs in different places in the movie. I, almost, I was like, okay, we got like this British rock sound, and now we have Lola. Let's put, let's put, let's put some Walker Brothers in there. <laughs> and uh, 30th Century Man is sort of probably the most well-known. You know, it's been used in commercials and stuff, but it just really it fit. Yeah. It just fits so well. See the dwarfs and see the giants. Which one would And if you can't get that together, here's the answer, here's the key. You can freeze like a 30 century man, like a 30 century man. I'll save my breath and take it with me until a hundred years or so. Shame you won't be there to see me. Shaking hands with Charles de Gaulle Play it cool and saran wrap all you can Be a 30 century man You can freeze like a 30 century man Like a 30 century man And then we've got Bonnie Prince Billy as well at the end. You gotta have Bonnie you Prince Billy. Have him in yeah, there. exactly. Like kind of good luck, man. Exactly, yeah. Totally. He's either in the movies or on the soundtrack, <laughs> and I've o- always gotta have him in there. I, I wasn't going anywhere until I heard the it's, whole song. It well. really just sums everything up. It's, it, it was a very last minute decision. Like, at one point, we were just gonna have score in the credits, but it wasn't leaving people in the right headspace. And I just was like, oh, there's one song of Will's that would be just perfect here. And we tried it out. It just lit up that entire, like, final 30 seconds of the movie yeah. when it cuts to black. When there's only one thing I can do But you know that I still don't want to do it And when there's just one way to get through Sometimes I still don't want to go through with it There are other ways I used to think Find my way around The wood and the caves And the bad woman's ways That were always to be found Now there is just one way To stretch out my arms and cry To that just one day I number the friends and the family That 
welcome the ring of the moonlight above me. scene where it goes through all his previous escapes yeah. which is a lot of fun there's a couple of shots in particular that the kind of audience it's lovely when an audience reacts audibly yeah yeah you know whether it's a gasp or a laugh or a cry or a no or whatever, yeah you know kind of thing and so i love that i love being in an audience that are really emotive and there was a real kind of audible response to those old shots of, yeah. of robert that kind of pop up on that was that a lot of fun to create that sequence was a blast. I mean, that was also always in the script. That and the Jackson C. Frank song, where like <laughs> every draft had those two things. And it was a lot of fun to come up with and then so much fun to shoot because we shot it like it was a student film. We just yeah. drove around Texas for two or three days, just coming up with prison breaks and looking for places we could shoot them. And it was very, you know, by the, the skin of our teeth, just trying to like come up with cool stunts that we could do. And of course, for most of those shots, you're not seeing. Forced face because it's not Robert Redford. It's yeah. a stunt performer. It's a younger actor. It's a little boy. But I really wanted to see him. I wanted to see him, and I wanted to just understand that we're watching the history of not just this character but this actor. So you see his face twice in that sequence. One of them, I won't tell you how he did it. The other one, we licensed a clip from a movie called The Chase that he yeah. made in 1966, one of his earliest movies, and it's a masterpiece that not a lot of people have seen. It's an Arthur Penn movie. And he breaks out of prison and the first scene is on, the, is on the run for the rest of the film. So it felt like there was like a ton of footage we could pull from and we found just the right clip. Yeah. And as soon as we cut that in, it just became a very emotional sequence. It went from being a rollicking good time to being something that was very moving. Yeah. And I think audiences definitely respond to that. It pops you out of the movie in a really good way for just a second yeah. and just contextualizes what you were seeing. Yeah. There are lovely little, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, little moments throughout the whole film almost that are reminiscent of his career. Mm -hmm. Even the, the conversation in the diner he has with Jewel about horses. And there was a kind of audible kind of laugh from the audience again when he was like, no, I've never ridden a horse. Yeah. Like, you know, that kind uh, of completely, thing. Completely, yeah. This feels really like a love story, almost a love letter from you to him as well in terms of how you wrote this part for him and, and, and what you included in it. It very much is. I mean, there's a couple of very deliberate nods, but those are less important to me than the, the more general ones, mm -hmm. the ones that sort of just lean into his iconography a little bit and poke at it or comment on it or embrace it, underline it. So I watched, you know, all of the classic Redford movies and I never wanted to just tip my hat directly to all of them, but I wanted to kind of tiptoe into their essence and just exist with them. Mm -hmm. And so there are all of these moments that aren't deliberate nods to any one movie, but are nods to him as a movie star. Yeah. And so certainly the horse, the, the arc of him on a horse in the movie, <laughs> going from him saying he's never ridden one to him finally being on top of one on the hill at yeah. sunrise, that calls to mind. With a poncho mind, on as well. Yeah, with a poncho on, touch. yeah. Which it, that, that calls to mind all sorts of things yeah. from over the course of his career. Him in the suit with that hat certainly is like, I'm thinking about the sting. I'm thinking about, you know, how good he looked in a suit and still looks in a suit. Yeah. And the stuff with him and Jewel, like there's some deliberate references to the spirit of Downhill Racer. No, you know, Downhill Racer is a skiing movie, but that's my favorite yeah. Redford movie. And I just love how irascibly awful that character is. And, yeah. and he's so rough around the edges. And then this one, I was like, let's... I want to keep a little bit of that. Like, this is a very charming character. It's a character we need to love, but I need him to be rough around the edges in the mm -hmm. same way. And so there's a lot of that. That, that. that playful, for lack of a word, he's 
sometimes a jerk. <laughs> but yeah. um but uh but you st- unfortunately we still love him. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's so weird because I I saw the film maybe 3 or 4 days ago and it's kind of really stuck with me and I've been talking about it non-stop and just how how in love I am with him again, you know. It's kind of every time you see him on screen you fall in love with him. Even Peach Dragon, you know, he's he's just so iconic on that screen. It's you're bringing that you're bringing so much history with yeah. with you whenever you watch him in a film, but at the same time, he hasn't changed. Mm. Like he's been doing this for 60 years now, and when he takes off that hat on that porch and he looks like he's 20 again, yeah. and I don't know how he does it. It was like it's not just on film; it's in real life. That happened in real life in front of us, and we were like, "You just lost decades in front of our eyes. <laughs> what a magic trick!" What did he say to you when he watched? Has he watched the film in full? He called me after seeing it for the first time. It was around Christmas time last year, and he was just delighted. He just loved it, and I, I was like, "Great! I don't need anything else." Like <laughs> he didn't want to change a frame. He was so happy with it. You just hear it in his voice over the phone, just how pleased he was. And I made the movie for him. You know, that was what I wanted to do. Like he, he brought this article to me. He brought the project to me. And so in in many ways, you know, this was a gift to me Mm -hmm. to get to make this with him. But I wanted to return it by making a movie that he would be proud of and that he felt, you know, at the time I didn't know that he wanted to retire. But the fact that he's happy enough with it to feel like he can hang up his hat now Mm. means a great deal to me. How wonderful to know that he brought this project to you as almost his way of saying thank you and goodbye. You know, for for what it's a lot to think about. Like wow. it's yeah, it's oh, it's, that makes it's me heavy. Feel really emotional. Yeah. Like that. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. What's next for you? Because this, I mean, this feels like it's been such an emotional, connective experience for you. When we spoke last, you'd already shot this. It's have weird, you? yeah. Like for the first time in a long time, I don't have like another movie in some stage of production right wow. now. I've been overlapping projects for the past four years. So I've got this uh, script that's a, a sort of medieval epic of sorts, but it's it's a weird movie. It's a really weird medieval epic that uh, we might start shooting in February or March of next year. And I'm really excited about it. I don't know. I'm, I'm knocking on wood left and right here uh, <laughs> because it... It's just weird enough that I can't actually ima- I can't believe it's actually happening. Oh, wow. But I sort of would describe it as, you know, as adventurous as a ghost story, but with a bigger budget. Being a medieval movie, it would need that. And um, and then after that, I'm hoping that I'll return to uh, the fold of the Walt Disney Company and make another movie with them because oh, we had such a great experience on Pete's Dragon, and they brought another project to me shortly after that and we've been working on it for a couple of years and I feel I feel like the script's finally in like a state where I'm really happy with it and so that's I hope great. hopefully they feel the same we'll see I'm putting it out into the universe that I hope they feel the same I think that's wonderful that you can comfortably flip between these worlds it's brilliant to be able to do that it's really helpful for me because it allows me to just make more movies yeah. I, as a moviegoer I have a voracious appetite for so many different types of films and I'm finding that I as a filmmaker have that same desire to just explore so many different tonalities explore so many different genres and and they all are going to end up feeling like my movies Mm -hmm. and so i don't really have to worry about how different they might be or how much of a left turn they might be because at the end of the day they'll all fit together just right i was taking my kids in school run this morning they were like what are you doing today mom and i was like oh i'm off to interview a really great director and they're like oh have we seen any of these films you have actually peach dragon and they'll be like Oh, I love that movie. Can we watch it again this oh, weekend? Oh, that's amazing. That's so, so great. So we have our viewing planned for this weekend. Oh, Thanks what a great... To, uh, that's so fantastic. My, my chatting to you. I'm really excited to see what's next. Thank you for this because it is just a, a really wonderful experience. There's so many there's so many emotions you feel watching this film. You really connect with it on so many levels. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that it connected. Brilliant. Thanks, David. Cheers for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. Go north.
Go north with the winds on your feet. Go north with the wind where the three rivers meet. There's a clearing of sorts in a circle of trees where the wild constellations shine one, two, and three. Look all around you and see. Deep in the forest, there dragons will be. They come from the earth, yes, they come from the stone. The icy cold north, that's where they call home. Go where the mountain kisses the sea. Better be brave, far braver than me. Look all around you and see. Deep in the forest, their dragons will be. Look all around you, you won't find me. From Pete's Dragon, that's the Dragon Song by Bonnie Prince Billy, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fabulous David Lowry. My huge thanks to David for taking the time to talk to us. The Old Man and the Gun is on general release around the world now and sees Robert Redford in sparkling form in what may very well be his last big screen appearance. So make sure you see it. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous shows, including David's first outing back on episode 51. You can subscribe whilst you're there and find links to Spotify playlists featuring the music we play in the order it appears. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do share with your friends on your socials. Next up, now before our usual weekly episode, which sees us sit down with none other than legendary director Peter Jackson and long-term producer Philippa Boyens, we have a soundtracking special in association with our good friends at Fender, which will be coming your way on Tuesday to reveal the winners of our competition to win a brand new guitar or bass from the new Fender Player series. To talk through the entries, we are thrilled to be joined once again by composer Daniel Pemberton and music supervisor Clea Savage. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 